Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, where change agents in social sectors, business, community, and faith meet at the intersection of belonging, imagination, and gifts. I'm your host, Troy Bronsink, from The Hive in Cincinnati, Ohio. What began as a friendship between Walter Brueggemann and Peter Block and John McKnight has grown into a fellowship program where 30 folks from around the world have been part of this 12-week learning journey where they've developed experiments of imagination and begin to compare that with this image of belonging and this image of walking into the wilderness out of a place of scarcity into a place of abundance. Today's episode is with Mary Kerrigan. She's an urbanist, an architect, a conservationist, and an animator. She lives in Derry, Northern Ireland, and we sat down with her to learn how the common good connects to a sense of place and built environment. We're hardwired to connect, and we don't realize, I think, sometimes how disconnected we are. Mm. And we, we don't realize what is surrounding us immediately in our, in our neighborhoods and the richness of that and the joy and the delight that that brings to, to people of all ages. There's a fascinating conversation about the built environment and its effect on the divisions that emerge in uh, society. I begin by asking Mary a little about her uh, background and area of focus. My research is the reshaping. I'm looking at the reshaping of the city of Derry over the last 30, 40 years, viewing it through the prism of the politics of peace building to see if, there are lear- if there's learning for places emerging from conflict and division. And the division might be something to do with conflict, but it might have nothing to do with conflict. So it could be something like, hmm, somebody has slapped a freeway through a neighborhood or you know, just the division that has emerged over the last 40 or 50 years, certainly in my part of the world, um, that comes with how we develop places and redevelop them. So that could be a, a, an area of housing that has only one way in and one way out, and everything else is a property boundary. And so the neighbours in one area of housing may not know their neighbours on the other side of the fence because they come in and out through a different route. What I would say is that we're all creating our physical world all the time, either by our action or our inaction. So whether that's the developer making a proposal and the architect who work for the developer and the people who buy the houses in that um, development, everybody is active in that process, or whether it's the inaction of, you know, maybe we don't comment on a planning application, we don't make an observation, and we stay silent. And so a particular proposal is voted through in a planning process And the next thing, we have created a world together Mm. that is dividing us. Maybe where it's unwitting, that division, but it's happening all the same. So tell me a little, how did you get into this work? Uh, What what, what kind of background did you come from that uh, that led you into thinking about environments in this way? Well, I go back to, I think, one of my earliest childhood memories. And if I take you back to a time when I am five years old, I'm in the back of the car um, with my my father and my brother, the next brother to me in age. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're on our way to primary school. You would call it elementary school. Yeah. And as we're driving, we're skirting the edge of the island town. And I notice sort of dust and rubble in the distance. And I'm saying, you know, Daddy, what's, what's going on over there? And he said, oh, they're knocking down Mary Street and Abbey Street. And I'm too young to know that those are among some of the very poorest back streets of the town. Okay. And 
it was, it's an area that was called the Dardanelles because um, so many men from those streets died in Gallipoli. Mm. And I'm also too young to know that this is the beginning of the end of the demolition over time of all of Enniskillen's side streets. So the town is primarily made up of a, a spine of a main street that meanders its way up and down to Drumlands and it through, through a hollow in the middle. Okay. And the side streets were like, I suppose, the ribcage. So these side streets were where everybody lived um, if they were not living over the shop on the main street. Okay. And it was a completely integrated, walkable neighborhood um, where all the, the functions that you need to live a good life were there. And everybody knew everybody. That place has been ripped apart both by my parents' generation, my own generation, and probably the generation below me. And in the demolition of all those side streets where people lived, um, the new housing development is on the tops of Drumlin hilltops. And our topography in that part of the world is, um, we, our hollows are very boggy, so okay. you can't really build there. And so we have created, in probably less than 30 years, a completely dispersed settlement pattern. You need a car to get from A to B. Uh. And the housing on one hilltop might be private housing. On another hilltop, it might be uh, social housing. So it has become um, a, a disintegrated, um, disconnected place. And the, the main street, which is kind of all that's left of that original town centre, is a place where people go to shop and maybe to work but there's hardly anybody living there. And the place where the side streets used to be are mostly surface car parks. So the main street's kind of a stage set. There we go. Um, uh -huh. Or wow. emptiness uh, when the shops and offices are closed. And I could cry oh. at what has happened. In her 1961 Watershed book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, activist Jane Jacobs described the way that cities and their design themselves create a presence of strangers that is valuable, that it's in sidewalks and in eyes on the street and in the hustle and bustle of street activity that the, uh, the vivaciousness of a city comes to life. Jacobs writes this, under the seeming disorder of the old city is a marvelous order for maintaining the safety of streets and the freedom of the city. This order is all composed of movement and change. And although it is life, not art, we may fancifully call it the art form of the city and liken it to the dance, not to a simple-minded precision dance with everyone kicking up at the same time, twirling in unison and bowing off in mass, but to an intricate ballet in which the individual dancers and ensembles all have distinctive parts, which miraculously reinforce each other and compose an orderly whole. You know, Jane Jacobs was so on the money with what she was writing. And mm -hmm. I realized her, her book, you know, The Death and Life of American Cities was published in 1961. That mm -hmm. was the same year that my parents chose to move um, to what was the beginnings of suburbia in Enniskillen. And in Ireland, we had a thing, I don't know if it happened in the US, but we have a thing, we call it ribbon development. So it's the beginnings of detached and semi-detached housing there we go. running along yep. the edge of the main roads into the town. I suppose 
you know, that was our family home for, in the case of my mother, for about 40 years. Um, we were surrounded by the best of people, the kindest, the goodest um, mm -hmm. people you could wish for as neighbours. It was lovely. It looked lovely. I think people were attracted by the uh, notion of the house and the garden and the driveway and the car and the drive and the garage. Yeah. And that seemed to be progress and continues to be in Ireland. It is, you know, there is a love affair with suburbia in Ireland. Oh, yeah. And that's the same in the States. Um, yeah. I'm speaking now in terms of my personal experience, you know, in mm -hmm. our family experience. I think maybe we didn't fully grasp what was lost until the later years of my mother's life when she was living alone in the family home in very declining health, a combination of dementia and cancer, and still with some of the long-established neighbours living either side who were visitors to her. Um, but their lives, as happens with so many of us, either they were still working and therefore not there during the day, or maybe they were looking after grandchildren during the day and very caught up with that. And I realized with hindsight, there weren't enough people living there with enough variety of ages and enough people in their homes during the day to be, I suppose, the good neighbors to, to mm -hmm. my mother in enough numbers. And all of us, her children, her adult children, we're all living in other towns, not only in Ireland, but in other parts of the world. The suburban dream can go a little sour um, when somebody finds themselves living alone for whatever reason. That's a, so that's a great example. What are some other examples of the ways this plays out then in immediate neighborhoods? Well, first of all, there's a couple of little short stories I want to share with you, I suppose, which take it away, particularly, say, from the town that I was born in. But the seriousness of this, Mm -hmm. uh, please and it, it's a story that was kind of pretty shocking in Ireland I think it was in about 2016 and it was about two elderly brothers who were living together in the, their home in Dublin and it hit the story hit the headlines that the two brothers were called William and Daniel McCarthy and William was deaf and Daniel was his carer and Daniel died William didn't know what to do or who to contact and a week later, William was dead as well, with his brother Daniel lying dead beside him. Oh my. And I think it was about another week before either of them was, was discovered. For Ireland, that was shocking. I mean, that made national news. For me, that was kind of, that's a canary in the coal mine kind of story. Indeed. The impact of this kind of social isolation that's coming from a physical environment where we are disconnected from each other potentially can kill us because William didn't really have to die because Daniel died. William could be you or he could be me. That's the implications of this. By contrast, I now live in a physical built world that is a very, very interconnected place where many of my neighbours know each other and where my mother came to live in the last year of her life and where I could not have predicted the extent of support and kindness and care that would come from some neighbours that I knew and neighbours that I didn't know at all. When she arrived, one neighbour ended up becoming one of the small number of people who shared the sitting up through the night in the last week of my mother's life when we maintained a 24-7 vigil around her bed. And I didn't know her. 
when my mother arrived. So that's the contrast of how a physical environment where people are interconnected by the physicality of the place, the difference that it can make. I suppose I, I wanted to say that we have some really brilliant examples of the kind of physical world that, that works. So while we can hear a, a larger context or a more of a rational argument for uh, engaging development and city and planning and built environments, uh, the, the, the real magic to some of Mary's work is her own personal commitment to this, that it's really uh, the marriage of uh, skill and intent that bring this into focus. And so, uh, so we lean in a little bit and ask, uh, what is it that she's particularly committed to in her work? I suppose uh, my commitment, my own personal commitment, is to a world of overall, to a world of belonging and delight. And I'm using that word delight. I'm borrowing from the ancient Roman architect, Vitruvius, who defined architecture. For something to be architecture, it had to have three critical ingredients. And these are his words. Firmness, so it must be structurally stable and well-ordered in its structure. Commodity, commodity for him was about it must serve its function, its purpose. So that might be that the rooms are the right size, they're in the right relationship to each other, they keep you, you're, you're dry and warm, all that kind of thing. And then delight is everything that makes that place, that building, uplifting to the human spirit. So the proportion of the rooms, uh, elegance in uh, the composition of the facades and the size and shape of the windows, how the light is brought in. Uh, the views, how they're framed, the materials that are used, and the quality of the craftsmanship and detailing. Um, everything that makes it, I suppose, beautiful. Um, so if I take that into, let's say, the real world, um, that for me translates into a future of distinctive, connected communities of delight. And if I apply Vitruvius's delight to what we need in the physical world to support the growth, the naturally, natural growth of communities. It is a place, whether that's a neighborhood or a downtown, that has firmness. It must have the right structure. So for me, that's the right footprint of perhaps streets, um, where the park is, um, that we can flow through those streets as pedestrians in a continuing interconnected way that it's got commodity, that it is serving its function well, so that it's got um, the right mix of uses, so that people are coming and going at all hours of the day and night, 24-7. The right kind of enclosure, so that these streets um, feel safe, so that they have windows that you can see out of and into, doors along the length of the street that people come in and out of all the time, and that we have a kind of a natural surveillance that as we walk along the street, whether it's morning time, midday, evening, it feels safe. And then that it has delight so that it is beautifully made, beautiful materials. And often I think we find this kind of world in our built heritage, the heritage that we have inherited from past generations. I think there's still enough of that left in the world that we can learn from that and take, draw the essence of that into the future and create new and better possibilities for our physical world that does support our deep need to connect meaningfully with each other as human beings. I know that modern buildings have a generally a, a design life of about 50 years. So in a way, that's our big opportunity because much of what we have built 
in the Western world in the last 50 plus years, I think has lacked the delight, often lacked the delight, sometimes it lacks the commodity bit as well. And some buildings even lack the firmness and have had some collapses. Um, those buildings are not going to last and many of the places that they create as a collective thing will also not last. And so that's our big opportunity. And uh, for me, I think we can learn lessons from these places from the past that still do give us that kind of context and draw that essence into the future to remake places that meet our needs as human beings. So it's a huge step to say uh, we want to remake places, but that can feel, feel pretty daunting. What are some tangible ways that you get folks to to even have an imagination and a, and a sense that they have the authority to get involved in that way in the planning of the city and built environment? Um, I discovered in my work often with people at a community level that many, many people are not always seeing the physical environment that they're existing in. And I remember something I remember from my very first week in the School of Architecture, which was in Liverpool in England, was one of my tutors uh, coming in. All of our tutors came in in the first week to tell us what architecture was. And we had a Scottish tutor called Duncan Stewart. And Duncan said to us, he said, our job is to prop your eyelids up on matchsticks so that you truly see the world around you. And that's kind of what happened. And I realized then in later my working life that that was obviously a privilege for me to have that kind of eye-opening experience and that many people don't have that uh, privilege, but I see no reason why not. Um, I was also fortunate that um, I think I had a mother who was a natural educator and she grew up in a, another part of Northern Ireland, a place called Kilkeel in County Down, in, in the mountains of Mourne, the Kingdom of Mourne. And every Easter we travelled from my home place, which was a place called Enniskillen, in the Lakeland area of Northern Ireland, we travelled east to Kilkeel on the coast. And on those journeys, my mother became a bit of a standing joke in the family because every year without fail, she would be pointing out, you know, look at the wee lambs in the fields, or we would stop in the ecclesiastical city of Armagh and she would, we would be brought into the cathedral to see the cardinal's red hats, which would hang from the ceiling until they rotted. And for me as a 10 year old, you know, I was just mesmerized with the notion that these hats would rot and fall. And, you know, I said, at least to say like, mommy, what's gonna happen if they fall on someone in the middle of mass? So I don't, my parents didn't have a background in architecture, but of course I was being brought into some of our finest buildings at that time. So I realized that my eye-opening experience actually started very young. Um, so I realized that many people are not seeing the physical world around them. And even when they do see it, they don't necessarily see what's great about it. And in a place like Derry, which has you know, been at the cold face of conflict, where there was a lot of destruction, um, for me, there was still a lot about that place that was great physically. But I've realized not everybody saw that. So part of this, uh, part of my work has been about working with people at a grassroots level to build the capacity of people to see what is around them, whether those are young children, teenagers, adults, older people, and um, gain a greater understanding of how our physical environment supports that community life. 
So we're going to end with this uh, story that Mary tells about the ways this all gets put into practice with strangers and neighbors and people that you wouldn't expect and how a built environment and the ways we engage in that environment can really affect the future of a community. Picking up on, on John McKnight's work and, you know, asset-based community development, um, I think I'm, I'm very keen to focus on what are the assets, what are the strengths that we already have? So where we have a very good physical environment, how can we build on that to make it even better and to build a stronger community or better neighbourliness? And so, for instance, in this little part of the world where I live, which is a network of seven interconnected historic streets, and the streets are made of, I think you would call them row houses, we call them terraced houses, Hmm. Um, and they're a combination of three-story row houses or maybe two-story houses where the two-story houses are very modest. We say two up, two down, so two rooms on the bottom floor and two rooms above uh-huh. with a back turn uh, with a kitchen and a bathroom and maybe a little yard. And those streets uh, lie between a modestly-sized Victorian park which has recently had a cafe built in it. And we also have on the other side, a corner shop uh, as we move out of this little neighborhood. And um, in the last couple of years, realizing that this was a very, this was a strength and that several of our neighbors knew each other already, but we didn't know everyone. And we have like anywhere in an inner city, we have some antisocial behavior now and again. Mm-hmm. So, I started, I think, to use some of Peter Block's um, inspiring work um, and invited some of the neighbours that I did know to my house. And we convened, I convened a conversation to explore the possibilities of us creating a street party together. Um, And one of the things I remember asking everyone, only three people turned up the first time, but that was a massive relief to me. I was afraid nobody would show up. And so the four of us sat in my front room and I asked everyone to think of one thing that they would be delighted to have happen at the street party. And the job for the rest of us wasn't to say, oh, that'll never work or you can't do that. It was to make it possible and make it happen. And so those things included one neighbor wanted to get all the cars out of the street so that we could have all of the street space for the street party, which we ended up calling a street feast. Another neighbor wanted um, the choir that she sings in with her daughter. She wanted to invite their choir to come and perform. Um, A neighbor across the street, her daughter and her daughter's best friend were facilitating a little uh, gypsy caravan. I don't know if that expression means anything to you and they were going from neighborhood to neighborhood in the city doing uh, facilitating arts and crafts work with children and then I I had an idea I thought it would be great if we could um, invite a community beyond our own seven streets so I wasn't sure if we were strong enough as a community to do something like that Um, and I was probably in the back of my mind I had something like Robert Putnam's Um, work on Mm -hmm. on social capital and the idea of building capital, social capital within your neighborhood or community, but also building social capital beyond it. And so um, 
I thought it would be nice if we could invite um, a community beyond our own and the newest community in the city in Derry at the time was a group of Syrian refugees. So to cut that very long story short, um, I can tell you that all of that happened and more. And we had Syrian dancing in the street. We had Irish dancing in the street. We had um, children playing on the street. And we invited everyone to contribute their gifts, skills, and talents, and to contribute um, food and whatever they might like to drink. And we asked people for their specialities where possible. And we also said, because it's a very socially mixed area, so some people who live here are very low income. And we said, if you feel you cannot contribute anything at all, you're still very welcome. Mm-hmm. And so it was completely magical. It exceeded everybody's expectations. And that evening, uh, we were uh, enjoying a little class uh, in one of the front gardens. And in the course of that evening, a young boy who had been at the street feast, and who we didn't know, came up the path of the garden four times, each time with something, a gift of gratitude. Each gift was more profuse than the last. And on his final visit up the path of the garden, he had his hands held out. And it looked like something like a pile of potato chips in his hands. Uh And he came over and he said, my mommy said it was okay to give you these. And I looked into his hands and there were three lemon rose blossoms there as a thank you for the street party. This has been the Common Good Podcast, conversations at the intersection of place, belonging, and remembering. You can learn more about the works of Peter, John, and Walter, as well as Mary's work and the Common Good Fellowship at commongood.cc. Common Good is a collaboration of The Hive, a center for contemplation, art, and action, and Common Change, eliminating personal economic isolation. We're produced by myself, Troy Bronsink, and Joey Taylor. Music is written and produced by Jeff Gorman. So uh, there's a lot of work that goes into each of these week's podcasts, and uh, Joey Taylor is, uh, is really holding all that together. And um, as I'm about to head on, a, on vacation, and he's going to hold more of this, I'm reminded of when we first had this idea, and he walked into the room, and there he was, and he held out his hands. And there were three lemon rose blossoms 